Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. Today, we're talking about school lunches. Governor Lenenda Mont signed a bill recently that will extend the state's free school lunch program for all students through the end of the school year. It was set to expire between last November and this month. Food is just as important as any other school resources for students, and many educators say that if a student is hungry, it makes it that much more difficult to learn. Here to talk about the importance of school nutrition and ways to inspire kids to eat healthier is Lonnie Burt. She's the Senior Director of Food and Child Nutrition Services at Hartford Public Schools. Lonnie, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. What was your favorite school lunch growing up? Join the conversation, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Lonnie, you're the Senior Director of Food and Child Nutrition Services. What does that mean? What does your job look like? Uh, It's very varied. And so my job is to be responsible for the overall operation of the food service program for Hartford Public Schools, uh, basically meaning where your children eat in the cafeteria. And so that program is under my jurisdiction. Uh, The menus, the uh, procurement, the staffing, the distribution of the food, all of that comes under uh, my responsibilities. And can you talk about some of the challenges that comes with your job? You must be serving a pretty large student population at Hartford Public Schools. Um, Absolutely. And so it is a very challenging job. Um, It's challenging in terms of making sure that you meet the students' needs with the uh, USDA regulatory processes and also uh, operationally be able to uh, pull it off. And so um, the biggest challenge I'd say is making sure we find foods that students want to consume because anyone who knows me knows I'm going to say next is it's not nutritious unless you actually chew it and swallow it. And we are here to talk about the importance of nutrition in schools. And I can't imagine, I mean, being just in a family of four, you, your parents have a difficult time trying to get your two kids or, or one child to have anything, let alone um, the many students in a school district. Can you talk about that particular challenge in just making sure kids do eat the food? How do you get around the different tastes of picky eaters or allergies even? Uh, all of that, exactly. Um, you often have to offer choices. That's that's the number one thing, to making sure that you have a variety of choices in the categories. So, for example, um, our fruit offerings each day are not just one fruit. They are multiple choices in the category of fruit so that students will find something that they like. Uh, the challenge certainly has been since the pandemic and coming out of the pandemic is Uh, the food supply chain, of course, just like you're seeing in the grocery store, and the labor shortage. And so that has really uh, hampered some of our efforts to expand our menus. But we try and offer, we definitely offer one or two hot choices every day, plus a variety of cold options in order to try and meet all of the students' likes and dislikes. And with the variety of foods, you know, and you mentioned it earlier, it doesn't count unless you actually eat it. And so how do you how do you help students understand that this is good for you? Um, 
it's you know it's something that you should eat or you know trying to build up those habits how do you go about doing that well uh for uh, quite a few years we've had food core service members in hartford where they go out into um, elementary schools and do nutrition education taste tests help i will say to you having a really good rapport with the food service staff that are on the front lines my staff knows their students in each school they talk to them individually, they will say to them, you know, why don't you just try a little taste me bite? Um, sometimes when we, when we rolled out butternut squash, students didn't know what that was, but my staff knew, do you eat sweet potatoes at home? Oh yes, my mother's sweet potatoes are banging. Then try this because this is similar to a sweet potato. So it's a lot of different ways to do that. I think it's making sure you try and find some cultural foods that are relevant to the students you're serving. You need to do some marketing. Probably the weakest point of me is marketing, but making sure your students know where their foods come from. In Hartford, we purchase a lot of local foods like uh, from Knox. We have a, com a partnership with Knox in Hartford and also uh, Keeney Park Sustainability Project. And our students really enjoy it when they know that the food that they're eating, the produce that they're eating is from their own backyard. Well, I love a uh, banging sweet potato myself, so I appreciate you saying that. Uh, and we'll get into the cost and the labor and a lot of those challenges in a little bit. But I do want to ask because many school districts are very diverse. And so how do you go about serving a diverse population? I know you mentioned that, you know, you ask what, what kids are used to eating and try new things, but there must be challenges to do that as well. Oh, lots of challenges because you'll have, you know, students say that's not what we eat at home or it doesn't taste like my mother's. And so you really have to try and find, we, what we try and do in Hartford is not pick one culture. We try and find as many culturally diverse foods as we can. We have the Jamaican beef patty. We have Erdo's gandule. We have collard greens. We have plantains. We have, uh, we have different foods that hopefully our students like. Uh, with seasonings that they're used to. And so, um, and I will say some of the best resources have been the students and our own staff. And I'll say to them, what do you eat at home that's not on our menu? And that's really how we came up with the, the Erdos Gandule recipe that we have on our menu is one of my staff's uh, recipes. We had five or six managers make their recipe from home. We had a little taste testing and we decided it was a Wilda's that was the best. And so we developed that into a quantity foods a recipe and now we serve it throughout the district and so i think it's taking inspiration from wherever you can find it but i think what i learned many years ago and the one thing that i am is a registered dietitian and so uh, my education half of it really was in food services and i i think back to those days when our advisor said to us in food service it's never going to be good enough and those words really resonate with me. Like you always need to be looking for ways to find new foods, put it out differently, season it differently. I mean, if you come to my house at Thanksgiving, my husband will say, don't even listen to her because I am critiquing my entire menu the whole day. Um, it was a little too much salt. It dried out a little too much. And I think that's what you have to do in food services. Always be looking for ways to improve so that you're always um, on the cutting edge of things. What I love that you mentioned, um, you know, getting ideas from your staff is it feels like a more personal process than what I remember as being in school. So I want to talk about how are you able to turn that into reality? How are you able to provide free meal lunches for students and how much is the cost of lunch nowadays? Um, okay, so that's a, a multifolded question. So in Hartford, we have a universal feeding program. It's called Community Eligibility Provision, and it's based upon the percentage of students that are identified as a food stamp receiver or living in a food stamp household. And so um, unfortunately in Hartford as an urban setting and um, 
we are a lower income area. And so we do qualify for that program. But the beauty of qualifying for that program is we are able to offer all of our meals at no cost to all of our students, regardless of their income. And so it really does help um, all of our families uh, really receive some good quality nutrition and help them stretch their food dollars for their own homes instead of having to spend it on school lunch. Um, I believe that the average cost for many uh, districts around the state are probably between $3 and $3.50 per meal, uh, which is still a bargain when you look at what um, the cost of groceries are in the grocery store right now. I think that's been one of our bigger challenges is the, the food supply chain, uh, getting the food products. Again, we aren't looking for a couple of portions. We are serving over 12,000 students a day for lunch. Uh, another five or six, seven thousand at breakfast. Plus, we have a supper program. So the quantities of items that we need take some a lot of planning and thought process. To be honest with you, what are we now? We're in February. We are placing our April orders, and we have written our April and May menus at this point because we need that type of lead time to get the product in. Well, we're talking about the labor and the cost and the challenges, but we're also talking about education in terms of uh, teaching students that these are healthy foods for them. Uh, we have a caller, Josh from Manchester, who would like to share some thoughts on that. Josh? Hi. Thanks for taking my call. I think one of the big problems with the school lunches is the students come to school from home uh, wanting prepackaged processed foods that taste good because we focus in our society on food that tastes good and not necessarily food that's nutritional. So we, what I understand about school lunch is kids eat the packaged food and the sweet food, but they leave the vegetables and the nutritious food on the tray that ends up going to trash. I'm just wondering how we can change our society to get all of us eating more healthy. Well, thank you so much for that call, Josh. And the question, Lonnie, I wonder if you can sort of help us break us down in terms of educating kids on the nutritious foods. And of course, at the end of the day, it's if they like it, right? If they like the taste of it. But um, what's what's the process like? So that's a, a great comment and an excellent question. And it is a challenge trying to get students to eat foods that they're not used to eating. Um, as a dietitian, I'm going to say to you that uh, the majority of students' flavor profiles and tastes and likes uh, happen before they get to me. I mean, their their eating habits develop between the ages of three, four, and five years old. So at that point, I need what I really need is for parents to expose their children to vegetables so that when they come to me, it's not a foreign entity. And I just saw something on the news and for Forgive me because I don't remember what the age category was, and it doesn't matter because I think it, it's across the gamut. It said one out of two people were not eating vegetables and one out of three were not eating fruits. And that's the crux of the problem. And so what we do, uh, what we have found is, is that students will eat more fresh vegetables than they will a cooked vegetable. So they like the vegetable sticks with dip. And while I realize that dip's not my favorite choice for them, if I can get you to eat a vegetable by putting a little dip in it, I'm okay with that. And so we find ways to save the calories and the fat somewhere else. We buy a low-fat dip. Um, I also find if it's a fresh vegetable that we've steamed versus a frozen vegetable, the students will consume it more. It's really looking and talking to students. It's getting... Uh, teachers involved with helping with some taste tests or walking around in the cafeteria with some portions of vegetables to get them to try it. I think it's a variety. There's not one answer, but I'm going to come back to we have to start exposing our very young children to vegetables at a very young age in order to move the needle um, in that area. I remember someone actually mentioning to me that if peas are your favorite vegetables, then you eat as much as possible, even though they're very starchy. Um, but so... 
I think we understand that the early exposure is really important for kids and whatnots, but there are families who aren't able to do that. Can you talk about those challenges as well for, for kids who are living in these food deserts and they don't have access to that early exposure? It is a, that is a big challenge. And so that is the importance of, of child nutrition and having uh, good food service programs in the school. So when the children do come, they are exposed. And one thing I say to my staff, um, uh, the, the caller was right. When we serve 12,000 portions of chicken patty, for example, or roasted chicken, we're not serving 12,000 portions of vegetables. That's the truth. Uh, but 12,000 students are walking by that serving line and seeing that vegetable, watching their peers eat that vegetable. You have to expose people over and over and over. And and I'm a hope springs eternal person. So I believe that the more exposure, the better chance. The goal of this is to, to the goal for me in child nutrition is to get our students to eat and consume food, the, the healthy foods now so that they can have some good growing strong processes to become young adults. But it's also that as they are young adults and going into adulthood and making their own food choices and going to the grocery store and purchasing foods, they will see foods that they have been exposed to and they are not foreign to them. And so I think when you look at what causes uh, children to um, not wanna try something, a big they're not risk takers, so it's fearful. So we have to get rid of that stigma to it. And uh, have you encountered challenges around the increased cost of labor and food shortages? Those are really hot topics in the last couple of months. And I'm wondering if that has a huge impact for not just your district, but pretty much statewide as well. Absolutely, uh, without any doubt. Okay, I've never seen, and I've done this, uh, Catherine, you know me, I've been around a long time, and I've never seen anything like what I'm seeing today. The the increase in food costs is 35, 40%. It's it's huge numbers. Um, That's been very challenging. And what probably most of your viewers don't know is that the majority of school lunch programs across this country are self-funded, self-operating, and need to be keep their budget in the black without getting any funding from the general budget of the Board of Education, which is uh, true in Hartford um, also. And so that's always the challenge. We in Hartford have between the public schools and we also service the the Jamoki Charter School, a couple of correct programs. We have 44 schools and of those 44 schools, I don't believe that five of them are fully staffed. And so we don't have a single school that's fully staffed, which then impacts what type of production you can actually do. And so one of the challenges we've had is keeping up with that type of fresh vegetable, all the cutting and the chopping and the high um, intense labor type food items and had to make some decisions last year and even into this year of what should we do. And so we focused on our fresh vegetables in the cooked category because the production of that is a little less than trying to cut and chop individual portions of vegetable sticks. So we've we've had to make some tough choices. No, absolutely. And and I know we've been talking a lot about challenges, but they are there because another one coming up for, I think, many school district is um, responding to the new guidance from the USDA, wanting to see low sodium and low sugar lunches. Is this going to add to the challenges that are already there or is this part of a process that's new? It doesn't sound like it's super new, right? No, this is not new. This is just the next phase of the whole Healthy Kids Free Hunger Act from 2012. There was always nutritional standards in there with limits on sodium and uh, fat and, and, and sugars. 
and now we are going into we've got a um we we have phase two we actually they've cut back a little bit on it they're strict and now they're the third phase is even stricter the biggest concern that i have with that is how are we going to uh, make sure students still like the flavor profiles we just did a taste testing with some students over at harford high a couple of weeks ago and their first statement to me was um, it was a great little group of journalism students and their first statement to me was this miss this needs more salt and I said to me, you do understand that we can't add more salt. So let's talk about what other spice would help you like this product without me adding any more salt to it. So that is a concern of mine. And so, but we're going to get through it and we're going to find some ways finding using fresh herbs, using uh, different flavor profiles does help. But they're, those sodium restrictions, I understand them and I understand why they're putting them into place, but uh, they're going to be a challenge. They're going to be a challenge for manufacturers to lower the sodium in their products, and it's definitely going to be a challenge for uh, school lunch programs to adapt and get our students to, to adapt to the flavor profile. The younger students will, and by the time they get into high school, they'll be used to it. It's going to be those middle high school kids who are not used to it now and are going to have a harder time adapting. Well, that makes me wonder if I need to start a running list of sodium salt uh, replacements. So if you have any ideas, please send uh, send them over. I would appreciate it. I will. Uh, and I will <laughs> please don't use a lot more potassium chloride. It's one of my bigger fears is that you're going to see that used a lot, which means it's going to increase some potassium levels. And I'm not happy. I'm not thrilled about that. But fresh herbs, my dear, that's what I need you to use. Fresh herbs. Fresh herbs. You've heard it mm -hmm. here. And you mentioned a little bit, you know, you, you do this taste testing with, with students, which I think would be super fun. And so they want more salt on certain foods. What else have you been hearing from your students about the meals served at your schools? Do they like it in general? Do they have opinions about it? No. What are you hearing? Well, they always have an opinion. Um, and I've been doing this, as you know, a long time, and they've always had an opinion. And so um, I will say to you that there would they would like to see, uh, I had those students actually wrote an article, which is what brought us to them. They wanted French fries more, and they wanted uh, more different choices of beverages. Um, and in our school meal program, uh, milk is the funding uh, beverage. And so we're not, we, we don't have a funding source for different types of beverages. Um, we did a survey with uh, Weaver High School students last year, and one of the items they wanted was um, chicken alfredo. Which so we developed this recipe this past summer and we incorporated into our menus for um, this upcoming year. And so um, it's really a matter of making sure you're looking at what their likes are and what is the latest and greatest. They like our, our students happen to like our, I believe when I look at, and where I get this from is the data. We see how many meals we serve in each category. Um, they like our more home style, the roasted chicken with the Erdos gandules. We have a we have a, a baked breaded uh, chicken that we use with macaroni and cheese and and um, you know a vegetable. They like that. They love our Salisbury steak. So as much as they like the faster food type items like the chicken patty or the chicken tenders, our our students really do like a more home style hot full meal at lunch, and we see that over and over again with them. So we've got about a minute left, but I do want to ask, you know, you mentioned you've been doing this for a while. How have things changed and evolved since you first stepped into this scene? When I first stepped into the scene, again, let me take you back to that. As much as it's about nutrition, it still is a budget. There's a lot of money behind it all. Okay. And it always was focused on making sure you balance that budget. And I'm going to admit this on public radio, I shouldn't. Uh, back in the very beginning of my career, I was proud of the day when we were able to afford a self-cleaning fry later so we could uh, sell more french fries a la carte to take. I took over a program that was financially losing a lot of money and we were able to turn it around. I am the most proudest of 
the final nutrition uh, standards and really seeing us focus on nutrition and fruits and vegetables and whole grains. I'm very proud of that. And, and I think it makes a difference. And I think it will make a difference moving forward. You've been listening to Lonnie Burt. She's the Senior Director of Food and Child Nutrition Services at Hartford Public Schools. Lonnie, thank you so much for showing us what it looks like to work in school nutrition and some of the progress that's already happening in schools. Thank you so very much. I appreciate your time. Coming up next, we'll be talking with two policy and health experts who will help us understand the history of school lunches, how much it has changed, and the challenges of providing healthier options. You can also join the conversation, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. I'm Catherine Shen. You're listening to Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. School lunches are on our minds today, and we're talking about how healthier meals could help kids eat better in general. But at the same time, it could be a challenge when it comes to habits, labor, and cost. Here to help us break all of that down is Marlene Schwartz. She's a professor and director of the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Health at UConn, and Dr. Melissa Santos, who is a division chief of pediatric psychology and clinical director for pediatric obesity at Connecticut Children's. Thank you both for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. You can also join the conversation, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, Marlene, we want to start with you. Um, How has school lunches changed over time from the days where kids used to be able to go home for lunch and to where we are now today? So school lunches have been around for, for many, many decades and originally were introduced nationally because of the problem of undernutrition. So there was a concern that our young people weren't um, sort of healthy enough to join the military. And so the country decided to start a national school lunch program. And the focus was really on nutrition from the very beginning, but it was more about getting enough calories rather than worrying too much about too many calories. Um, That then changed over the decades, and probably in the 90s, early 2000s, research started coming out showing that school meals were contributing too many calories, particularly from 
um, sugar and saturated fat. And that's what led to then the Healthy Hunger Free Kids Act, where there were a lot of new regulations put into place to improve school nutrition. And in terms of um, the proposal by the USDA to sort of change school lunches to be more low, low sugar and low sodium, can you talk about some of the challenges that comes with that? Well, um, as we just heard, th those really aren't new ideas. This is part of what was introduced with the Healthy Hunger Free Kids Act, that it was going to be a gradual sort of phasing in of stronger nutrition standards. But I think that the challenge, one of the challenges really is the food industry, you know, creating the products. Um, sodium is in a lot of products you wouldn't necessarily expect, like grains, you know, breads, pastas, things like that. And so the industry really does need to step up and reformulate some of those products so that food service directors are able to access them. Right. So at the end of the day, it, it actually comes down to where you're able to get the products. And can you also touch on the challenges that Lonnie Burt, who is a nutritionist at Hartford Public Schools, who was with us earlier, you know, she describes some challenges of getting kids to eat healthier and to actually you know, eat the foods that are given to them at school. You know, what are some of the challenges that you're seeing in terms of that? Yeah. So, I mean, I know that it is definitely hard to get kids to try unfamiliar foods. Um, but the research has actually shown quite consistently that when children are introduced to healthier foods at schools, that they get used to them and they eat them. Um, so we've done research, particularly in New Haven, where there were some changes from the Healthy Hunger Free Kids Act, where, you know, there were some more stringent nutrition um, you know, sort of updates. And we found that there wasn't an increase in plate waste. We found that the kids were eating just as much of the food as they were eating before. So I think that it's, you know, you kind of have to have faith in the idea of you introduce it early, you're consistent, um, the kids are used to eating these foods. And the other thing that's really important for people to understand is that the research is also very clear that for many American children, the healthiest foods they eat are at school. So this isn't just the healthiest foods they're served, but it's actually the healthiest foods they eat. And so I do think that kids are getting a lot of nutrition at school, and we should really be thankful to people like Lonnie who are working so incredibly hard those meals. We want to come back to um, the healthy meals in, in schools in a second, but I want to ask Melissa as well to respond to what Marlene just described. Now, what are some of your concerns about uh, the USDA's you know, kind of new but not really new policy on low sugar and low sodium and anything else that you want to share? Yeah, so it's such a great question. I agree with everything that Marlene said. One of the things, you know, obviously I sit from the, the lens of kids and families that are coming into our weight management program trying to find ways to be healthy in the school lunch program is a great way. And one of the key things I think as these new regulations continue to come through is something that Lonnie said earlier, which is the more that we can get kids and families involved in the process of food selection and really being champions for the new lunch um, programs as they start to evolve. I think that's how you're going to also increase the buy-in and getting kids to continue to um, try the new foods, eat their plates, eat their school lunches. Um, I think sometimes in the past, there's been some changes that have been brought in and that have been very dramatic. They've been hard for kids. And I think the more that we can get them involved, have them understand that food can be fun. The health nutrition part of this can really be fun. And then how we can carry this over. As Marlene said, the school lunch is oftentimes the healthiest meal that many of our families and our children will have. And then how can we carry that over to outside school? 
what I was going to say, you uh, you just uh, um, basically asked my next question is, when you have that one uh, healthy meal in school, does it influence the way they eat for the rest of the day and the week and at home? What are your thoughts? So I think it's complicated. And I think, you know, probably anything that anybody takes away from any discussion on nutrition and kids eating is that there's many layers to this and it gets very complicated. Um, We know that many families would like to increase the range of fruits and vegetables and healthy foods that they offer at home. But we also know that they're limited. They may be limited because just in their family, when they were growing up, when their parents were growing up, those were not foods that they were used to, was not foods that got incorporated into their meals. And then we also know that there are sometimes access issues and access concerns where how readily can families access fresh fruits and vegetables and healthier options um, to be able to incorporate them at at home. We know that uh, many areas are still food deserts where access to fresh fruits and vegetables, access to grocery stores are not easy to get to, which I think can make it challenging. We know that families, particularly if they come from limited income, are not going to want to spend uh, money on food that they're not sure is going to be eaten. Um, and so I think the more that kids can get exposed at school, it makes families feel more comfortable to spend the money to purchase it at home. Well, so we recognize that a lot of times it's it's the expense of preparing healthy meals or even the time and energy to do that. But what about kids pushing back from these foods? Are, are you seeing that as a problem? Or can you talk about the challenges of getting kids to eat healthy, but they're not really eating it in school? Yeah, we do. And we we oftentimes see kids are like, oh, my gosh, I don't like the way that smells or I don't like the way it looks or they'll poke at it or, or they'll do everything on the plate to not actually get it in. But I think the more that we get kids involved in the aspect of nutrition and food and cooking and let them have a say in what kind of ends up on their plates and maybe even get them involved as much as possible. I know in the schools it can be challenging, but, you know, get them involved in cooking, having them understand food preparation. I think the more that we get them involved from an, a young age in the process of cooking and nutrition, I think that's going to increase our chances that they're not looking at something on their plate and being like, I don't know what that is, and it's not going in my mouth. <laughs> I mean, that's a legitimate question. I totally yes. get that. <laughs> <laughs> I want to ask uh, um, um, Marlene, Melissa mentioned earlier that access is a big problem for a lot of families, whether it's it's cost, expense, and whatnot. How big of a problem is food insecurity in the United States and in Connecticut? Yeah, food insecurity is a very significant problem in the country and also here in Connecticut. I mean, I think one of the, you know, challenges is just the cost of living here is very high. And, you know, families are often faced with making decisions between, you know, paying for housing, paying for medical care, paying for food. And um, one of the reasons why having meals available at school, particularly meals at no cost, is because it really helps families at least know that their children will have access to food at school. And that really, you know, sort of helps them with managing their food dollar that they're spending for food at home. And I have a feeling this next question is going to be a complicated answer, but I want to ask, now, what do free lunches look like? Um, do schools lose quality when you are providing lunch for everyone? What is what is that like for, for kids? So, you know, that's interesting. That's actually been studied. Um, there was a very large national study looking at school meals um, kind of right when the changes from the, the Healthy Hunger Free Kids Act were taking place. And they found that it wasn't more expensive to um, provide the healthier meals. So they actually looked at cost and then they looked at sort of the nutrition quality of the meal and they didn't find any evidence of that. I think in some ways um, it's almost like an economies of scale issue that when the meals are are 
provided at no cost for all children, your participation goes up. So for example, in Hartford, where we just heard, or New Haven or Bridgeport or Stanford or any of our districts that usually provide uh, free school meals, their participation levels are higher than in some other districts. And when you know that you're going to be serving more meals, you're able to, you know, sort of trust that you can get all of the ingredients you need and prepare the meals and you don't worry so much about having a lot left over. And speaking of free lunches, uh, Brendan on Twitter said there's no stigma when it's free for everyone. Can you respond to that? Uh, how does a, is, is there a stigma? How do how do people um, deal with that? So, yeah, the stigma is is an interesting issue, and I think it really varies by district. But if you're in a district where there isn't a very large percentage of students who um, can get the lunches for free or reduce cost, um, there can be a stigma because oftentimes those are the children who are getting the lunch. And then the other children either are paying cash for snack foods or bringing their their meals from home. And so you do somehow sort of you can sort of see that division. Um, whereas when the meals are available at no cost for everyone, which is what we've seen for the last two years because of the pandemic, participation goes up and then it just becomes like a normal part of the day. If more kids are eating the school meals, it isn't so obvious who's getting it for free and who's not. And, and people just sort of see it as something that everybody does. And I think that that definitely does reduce the stigma. Uh, Melissa, can you respond to that as well? We'd love to hear what you have to well, what you think about it. Yeah, I totally agree. I think we know that um, it can be hard being in schools nowadays, and I think kids can be the target for bullying and and having things directed at them. And I think the more that we can kind of reduce it um, in any kind of way, I think that really helps. And I think this is one way um, for not for kids not to have to look quote unquote different or have to do something differently in order to be fed during the day. Um, and so I think it does go a long way to reducing that stigma attached to it. And sort of a related question, uh, Marlene, the student lunch debt issue, how big of a problem is this? Well, I mean, it has been a very big problem um, because the difference, like if you just look at the income to qualify for free meals is around $36,000 a year for reduced meals is around $50,000 a year. But the cost of living in Connecticut for a family of four is $90,000 a year. So that's clearly a huge gap. And those are a lot of families that are making too much to have the free meals, but are still clearly not making enough, um, you know, to meet the cost of living here in our state. And so meal debt has been a problem. And that is definitely one of the things that disappears when you have universal, um, you know, free meals, as we're seeing this year. And Melissa, is that something that you are seeing as well? It is. And it, it's something that, um, is a concern. And I think it's something we probably don't discuss enough. And so I think it's where this kind of free lunch plan can really go a long way. And both of you have been in this, should I say, industry for a little bit. You, you're you on the ground, you're talking to family, you're talking to students. And what are what are some of the biggest changes or issues are you're seeing recently or in the before times? Let's go with uh, Melissa first. In terms of how kids are perceiving the school lunches? Yeah, or just, you know, what 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 kind of experiences are you seeing or what are you hearing from students? Or do they have concerns about the, the lunches that they're eating or what sort of health concerns are you seeing from them? So we hear a, a lot of mixed things about um, from kids around the school lunches. I think they um, oftentimes are not the biggest fans of, of 
perceiving that there's big changes occurring. They they like kind of what they're used to and and um, things like that. I think sometimes they get tickled out of some of the things that is served to them in the school lunches and um, and things like that. But it's also neat when kids come back and be like, you know, Dr. Santos, I tried this you know, new vegetable that we've been trying to get them to try a whole lot because the school kept like putting it on my plate, they kept putting it on my plate, they kept putting it on my plate. And I finally just tried it and it really wasn't as bad as I thought it would be. And so I think that's one of the the fun things that we hear from kids around the, the school lunches and, and that exposure that I think Lonnie was talking about earlier is that the more it's, they have to pass it, the more it's put on their plate, the more they have to, you know, kind of stare at it, the more they will go to trying it. And that's how we can go a long way to keeping our kids the healthiest. I was going to say, it's always exciting to hear kids being excited about food. And Marlene, are you hearing similar things or what are what are some of the experiences that you're hearing? Well, um, one of the things Lonnie mentioned was Food Corps, which is a national program where people um, sort of typically young adults uh, work in the schools and really try to do hands-on nutrition education in the cafeterias. And I think that's a, a great strategy because when you're learning nutrition education in the classroom, sort of abstractly, that's one thing. But when you're actually learning it with the food on your plate and tasting things and, and sort of getting to know different flavor profiles, I think that's a great way to introduce um, students to different foods and get them more excited about it. So I love programs like that. I love any efforts that schools make to really try to connect what they're learning in class about nutrition with what's happening in the cafeteria. And I'd love to see more of that. And we've been focusing the conversation a lot about lunches, but what about breakfasts? Uh, is that something that is common, should be more common? What's that like? Um, so the breakfast program nationally is not as big as the lunch program because there are schools that just don't offer it. But I think that, um, you know, with the pandemic waivers, having universal free breakfast was also part of the deal. So schools were able to offer both breakfast and lunch. And we've um, done research on this as well and have found that breakfast consumption definitely goes up when you offer it at, at school. And in particular, if you try to be flexible, so not just expect everyone to get there early and go to the cafeteria, but to offer grab and go breakfast, breakfast in the classroom, breakfast after the bell. So lots of ways to just make sure that within those first, you know, sort of hour or two that students have access to breakfast, we find that that they're more likely to eat it. And from a nutrition perspective, it is definitely um, important to have breakfast and we haven't seen a problem. There was a concern that sometimes kids might eat two breakfasts and that might lead to weight gain, but we actually have not seen any evidence of that. We've actually found that concerns about uh, childhood obesity are most significant in students who skip breakfast altogether. You've been listening to Marlene Schwartz. She's a professor and director of the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Health at UConn, and Dr. Melissa Santos, who is a division chief of pediatric psychology and clinical director of pediatric obesity at Connecticut Children's. They will both be staying with us to talk about how even having just one healthy meal a day could impact students' academic performances. That's coming up next. You can also join the conversation, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live and share with us what were your favorite meals in school. From Connecticut Public Radio, I'm Kevin Shen, and you're listening to Where We Live.
This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. We're jumping right back in with Marlene Schwartz. She's a professor and director of the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Health at UConn, and Dr. Melissa Santos, who is Division Chief of Pediatric Psychology and Clinical Director for Pediatric Obesity at Connecticut Children's, to talk about how healthier foods could influence learning and academic performances for students. You can also join the conversation, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, Marlene, we touched on it a little bit earlier that school lunches, sometimes it's the only meal or the only healthy meal that kids are receiving in one day. How significant is that, and how does it impact the rest of the food choices that they make and how they perform academically? Well, I think that, you know, there's very clear research that food insecurity, not, you know, knowing when you're going to get your next meal or not getting enough nutrition is associated with a lot of negative health outcomes as well as negative academic outcomes. So, I mean, it almost feels like you don't need to do a research study to show that you need to have children who, you know, have gotten a good night's sleep, who, you know, had a healthy meal to be able to sit down and really focus in school. So I think that, you know, certainly the research on that is is quite clear. Well, perfect timing. We have a caller, Rafon from Cromwell, who wants to talk to us about that. Rafon? Hi, Lucy. How are you? I'm good. How about yourself? I'm good. So I'm actually a father of six kids who all went to public school and a teacher in Middletown, and I just fully appreciate the breakfast and lunch programs. And I, I see kids every day grabbing, you know, breakfast from the cart to bring it into the room. And I'm just so excited because I know that if they don't eat, then a the learning is not going to take place. So I'm just super excited to see, you know, us come around uh, knowing that meals are important and now moving to a point where we can provide it for all kids, my kids, my students, and everyone else. Well, thank you so much, Rafon, for sharing that experience with us. Uh, Marlene, are you excited to hear Rafon's excitement? I am very excited. I mean, I I am a huge fan of the school meal programs. I do sometimes feel like they're treated unfairly and people, you know, kind of think back maybe to when they were kids. Like, you know, I grew up in the 70s and 80s, and that was definitely a low point for school meals, but they've come such a long way. Um, And shout out to Middletown. They have a particularly strong uh, school meal program there as well. And I just think that, um, you know, like Lonnie said, they're balancing children's tastes, nutrition, federal guidance guidelines and a budget. I mean, they're given an incredibly difficult job. And I really think that the food service directors across the state of Connecticut are doing an amazing job. And I'm really glad to, you know, to hear appreciation for them. Yeah, that really is a lot of juggling. Uh, Melissa, I want to ask you as well, you know, what are your thoughts about what Rafan has to say about his excitement for free school lunches? Yeah, I was excited for his excitement. And I was also excited over something that he had said about um, the breakfast being brought into the room and something Marlene had said before the break, which is the flexibility within the schools. And I think the more that uh, our schools can be flexible, particularly when it comes to the breakfast program, we know school is tough for some kids. And so kind of starting your day and trying to get some food in may be hard for kids that have some worries or have some nervousness about the day at school. And I think the more that they can have that food take it in when they can and kind of have a little bit of flexibility about when they take it in can go a long way as well. And you both mentioned there are studies, more many studies that have been researched on this topic, but what are what are they showing in terms of how the meals kids receive at school impacts academic performance? Want so to start I can- with- 
I can start. Um, yeah, so you know, now there's research that shows that you know kids that tend to do better in school and have higher grades tend to have more consumption of fruits and vegetables and have less soda and sugary beverages. You know, there's some suggestion with research that the more that we have nutritious meals, um, the more that helps improve brain functioning and focus and things like that. But I think outside the research, I would probably ask anybody, think about what happens when you eat a meal that's not the greatest. Like think Thanksgiving, like is anybody doing their best work right after a Thanksgiving meal? Are you taking a nap afterwards? If you kind of have a sugary breakfast, are you able to focus or are you kind of jittery and kind of a little bit all over the place? That's going to apply to our kids too. So we know there's good research to support what a healthy um, nutrition meals can do. And I think we probably all see that in our everyday when we don't make the best choices for ourselves. I absolutely need a nap after all that turkey. So I appreciate yes. that example. <laughs> um, and um, in, in terms of uh, what's what is available for kids nowadays, you know, what what are we hearing from teachers as well? You know, they're involved, they're on the ground. You know, what are you hearing from teachers? Whoever likes to start first. Marlene? I mean, I think, yeah, I mean, I think what you hear from teachers is that they know that their students do better when they've, they've eaten. So I think it's, you know, like, like Melissa was saying, I mean, it's kind of a question we all know the answer to ourselves. You almost don't need research to prove that it's true. And I know our teachers will oftentimes say it breaks their heart when they know that a student's hungry um, and didn't have a chance to have breakfast and that the school doesn't have a program. I think that's really hard for teachers to sit with a student who's struggling in that way. And I was going to say, Melissa, what about the time children spend eating at lunch? You know, oftentimes that lunches are reduced now in terms of timing, which is which is a big deal in terms of the time they spend. Right. So this is a a little bit of a comedic thing that we end up discussing in our in our clinical program a whole lot, because I'll have kids that come in and they'll be like, you know, I only get seven minutes for lunch by the time I get to the, you know, I get to the cafeteria, by the time I get through the line, by the time I find a chair, by the time I sit down. Um, And so oftentimes that's the biggest thing I hear, whether it's reality all the time or not, I'm not quite sure. But, um, you know, we do know that kids need time to to sit, to process, to chew, to allow their body to kind of feel settled um, with the food. And it's hard when you have other things that you're trying to do or you want to talk to friends and things like that. Um, but I will say our, our kids or the kids that I work with a whole lot will oftentimes say that one of their challenges is slowing down their eating in general because they feel like they have to eat so rapidly. Yeah, I mean, that's that's such a, an important point. I'm glad you brought that up. There, There is also research looking at plate waste. And one of the things that helps with that problem is giving students more time. So it isn't always that they don't want to eat the food. It's that they don't have time to eat the food. And so I think making sure that there is adequate time for students to get the lunch, to sit down and to eat it um, is is super important and should be a priority. Well, we got a couple minutes left, but I want to ask both of you, uh, Marlene, start with you. Can you talk about the pushback on changing nutrition on school lunches? I think some people want to see a full range of options and to see the onus on children to make healthy decisions. So, yes, yeah, sometimes people do do say that, that they they think that you're teaching children to make hard decisions if you expose them to something you don't want them to choose so that they can learn not to choose it. As a psychologist and sort of understanding human behavior, that basically makes no sense at all. That would be like saying, oh, sure, we should put cigarette machines in our schools so that our children can learn not to buy cigarettes and smoke. So I I don't agree with that at all. I think you definitely want to provide choices, as Lonnie said, you know, when they try to provide multiple options for meals. Um, We've done studies showing the more options you have for fruit, for example, the more likely the kids are to pick a fruit and to eat a fruit. So I think choices are great, but all of the choices we provide 
provide our children should be ones that we would be happy for them to select. I don't think it makes sense to put something in front of them that we don't want them to pick and then just tell them not to do it. Well, Melissa, same question to you, but also want to add on to your, do you have any advice for parents to help build those healthier choices at home and bring those uh, habits to school? So I think when we think about what parents can do at home to help build those healthy habits, we we go back to getting the kid involved, you know, getting your children involved in, in picking. Like I'll meet a lot of families that like moms won't eat a vegetable or a dad won't eat a vegetable. And so we'll oftentimes talk about can you get to a grocery store and just find something to try that's a little bit different. And then really talking about it in terms of different textures and different ways to prepare. I think the more that we can expose kids to a variety of things, to Marlene's point, so that when we provide choices, we're comfortable with all the choices that are available for them to select. And I think we start at home by getting kids involved, getting parents involved, creating opportunities, having a little bit of fun, and then giving kids those choices. And because you see a lot of families and kids, do you see more parental involvement in terms of helping them make these choices? I think kids do better when it's done as a whole family versus a child feeling like they have to do something different than everybody else. All right. That sounds perfect. Um, You've been listening to Marlene Schwartz. She's a professor and director of the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Health at UConn. And Dr. Melissa Santos, who is a division chief of pediatric psychology and clinical director for pediatric obesity at Connecticut Children's. Thank you both so much for spending time with us today. Thank Thank you. you. I'm Catherine Shen. Today's show is produced by Tess Terrible. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. Download Where We Live anytime on your favorite podcast app. And thank you so much for listening. <laughs>